The narrative of institutional adoption is nothing new in the crypto space, but arguably no company has been there since the beginning, driving that narrative more than CoinShares, who has ETPs, electronically traded products, and has been servicing institutions from the very beginning. I talked to Jean-Marie Magnetti, the CEO of CoinShares, about what they're seeing now from institutions, what they're excited about moving forward, and of course, how much damage we saw in 2022 and what that means for regulation moving forward. But CoinShares was started in Europe, correct? CoinShares was born in Europe, yeah. But the funny, funny stuff is like before CoinShares, the company was called Global Advisors. And Global Advisors was a community hedge fund with my two business partners, Danny Masters and Russell Newton. And it was originated from New York and London. So we have like, a, we were on the NYMEX floor uh, in New York and we were in London. And in 2008, we moved to Jersey, the old one, not the new one. <laughs> yeah. And so how have you found the difference between operating in the United States and operating in Europe, especially in context of everything that's happening now, this massive sort of up, uptick in rhetoric and, and regulation by enforcement? You know, you know, it's funny because the U.S. has always this kind of massive tech-driven, forward-looking uh, uh, kind of uh, ethos uh, in general. And in crypto, uh, you have a lot of innovation, which happened in the very early days in the US. Then the oil mining moved out of the US and was by, based in Asia mainly. And everybody was like, oh, the US are dead. Everything's happening in Asia. And overnight, the US requalify of this kind of massive champion in mining. Um, and nobody sees that coming at all. Um, and yeah, right now there's a bit of, a, I would say, riff rough in the US around how who is regulating what with the CFTC and the SEC. And you can see Europe kind of almost getting the act together with Mika, uh, the Swiss doing it pretty well. You can see Hong Kong doing some advanced stuff as well. And say, okay, well, maybe the US lost their mojo when it comes to being the innovator. But, you know, uh, even if they're a bit like the underdog at the moment on this regulatory framework, you may see them kind of requalify themselves very quick because, you know, traditionally they have this capacity to move extremely fast uh, and and to change and to turn the table at the speed people are not used to see. So, you know, I wouldn't sell the US too quickly. Yeah, but you talk about uh, moving very fast. It seems that the only thing moving very fast is everyone in crypto out of the United States. <laughs> yeah, look, it's a it's it's a fair point. Uh, at the same time, uh, what is very different than different uh, innovation and uh, or generation of innovator. Uh, it's like the crypto crowd is very, I would say, digital nomad-like, and they just don't have any possession or very little, I would say, possession in the, the world physical form. So taking a laptop and move away is a very uh, simple form of expression, and voting with your feet become a, a reality. You know, it's a, and the, the, you know everybody is much younger as well, not being ageist, so there is no real string attached with family, school, and all this kind of stuff. So everything is like much more transient and and can move from one continent to another uh, at a very heavy pace. Right. And with regulation, we're seeing a lot of that, right? This sort of concept of yeah. regulatory arbitrage. You hinted at the fact that uh, Mika is likely coming soon. Switzerland is somewhat friendly. Hong Kong was a bit surprising to me, right? And I guess well, that does show how funny. fast you can pivot because China it's was funny. left for dead. <laughs> yeah, you're right. But like Hong Kong is very surprising. But like I was in the SFC office in Hong Kong in 2018, and they were already kind of thinking about it and how to think about it from a security perspective. 
they were not thinking about it as a digital asset regulation framework. They were really looking at it as how do we make it fit with our, within our security framework? And, and, and company like OSL, who were there very, very early on, kind of plays a game to go through the whole hoops of security that they have now built a, a lovely, I would say, market advantage in, in this town. Yeah, I, I love Dave Chapman. Uh, we were in Dubai not long ago from OSL, and it is incredible what they've done. I just think there was that narrative that China was finished with crypto, right? I think if you yeah. looked under the hood, maybe that wasn't the case. But there was still look, plenty it, of mining, but... There, there is few stuff to look at in China. You know, mining is one thing. Uh, the other stuff is also what is a, a CNY, ECNY uh, kind of innovation framework. And, you know, we saw all the innovation in Shenzhen, all the, I would say... Uh, initiative around the red envelope day uh, where they just like airdrop effectively uh, ECNMI through different uh, shops uh, in different wallets uh, that works extremely well and then you get the extension of that to Silk Road not the old Silk Road but like the, the Chinese project Silk Road of like all the influence project uh, and Hong Kong will remain the lab you know it's a, Hong Kong is a very it's a fabulous lab to, to be able to to push project out so uh, I think what you see on the contrary is like the, the SFC moving forward and uh, the, the government's not moving forward, I think is moving forward with some form of blessing or at least I would say, I would say unsaid blessing from the, the central government in China. Uh, so it's quite interesting to see that something is happening there. I think you have a more optimistic view of the United States than I do, or certainly than most of my guests do, that they're likely because, to pivot. Do you think that... Because that, I'm I mean, just a tourist. You, it's like when you guys come to France, you have a very optimistic view of France. It's a lovely place to live. And I'm saying, I can't wait to leave. So Yeah, and then, and then you, round the cor- you round the corner and the torches are in the Black Rock offices, right? So yeah, so, I, I, I do understand that. I just think that uh, there's a lot of, I guess, fear that this particular regime is not going to give us sensible regulation or guidance. Even the, I, I think this, everyone wants some sort of regulation, but I think more than anything, they just want clarity. What can we do? Uh, yeah. What can't we do? What are these assets, right? And we don't have that at all here. No, but it's going to come. Uh, and I think the CFTC uh, taking over and like trying to push this narrative is like going in the right direction. Because if the CFTC win the argument, then it's going to make it very clear this morning of the CFTC regime. Uh, and then they can um, almost unroll the agenda. Uh, you know, to some degree, you already had this little kind of fight uh, between agencies. If you go back to the days where they launched they launch, uh, ETF on oil and gold, the question was like the underlying is a commodity, uh, the product is a security, so who is re- who is like overseeing that? And this kind of battle already happened in the past. So I'm quite interested to see what's going to happen with this whole CFTC action right now, because that might be the, the start of the CFTC taking over, actually. Uh, do you have any major concerns that they're going after so many exchanges and, and platforms in the United States that it could actually be debilitating for the industry? Or do you think that people will just uh, vote with their feet, as you said? Uh, I think two things. I think, A, uh, people vote with their feet, and that's kind of a, a, kind of a long-established principle. Uh, but more importantly, I think a lot of... Um, when the old debacle happened last time, I was in the U.S. Um, and people were talking more about it outside of the U.S., not knowing what was happening, than people in the U.S. And the people who are operating big operations in the U.S., they just see it as a part of an operating expense. And they're like, okay, we're going to have to deal with that and we're going to deal with it. Uh, and it's something, you know, the, 
the relationship to that kind of problem from an American point of view is like, okay, well, that's another business item we have to deal with and we're going to deal with it. Um, and it's a very different approach, I think. So you've obviously been on top of this for quite a while, right? You guys pivoted to crypto in 2013, exceptionally early. Yeah. It makes I us feel very old now. Yeah. I mean, 10 years old in this industry is like a thousand. Uh, it's, like, it's like, you know, it's like a laboratory. That's like golden retriever age. You know, it's like 10 years in golden retriever is like dead. That's pretty much the same thing in crypto where you get old very quickly. Absolutely. So first of all, I guess let's talk about the history and why you identified this opportunity and were actually willing to go, you know, wholesale into crypto. But then I want to know what's vastly different, if any of that premise or the reasons that you did it has changed, or if it's only sort of advanced and become, uh, you know, more amplified. I think like originally, uh, we were running out of the commodity cycle, the commodity, the commodity super cycle was finishing. And our clients at the time were like, okay, guys, can you do fixed income? Can you do equity? And, you know, our knowledge was in commodity and it was probably a, a short summary for us to think our knowledge was in commodity. Well, we end up discovering once we return the capital and doing a bit of work on ourselves and, you know, a bit of introspection that the reality was that we were really deep value investors and, and like really deep, deep value investors, you know, we invested in silver before it's even rally. We invested in, in oil when it was $8 saying it would worth hundred dollars. So there was like plenty of thematic we did in the past, uh, which was kind of this deep value thematic and we we're like, okay, well, we're going to do something which is in the same vein. And, we were proposed plenty of business opportunity, and one day we heard about Bitcoin, don't even pay attention, and we heard about it six months later and said, well, maybe we should look at it because it's twice in a row, maybe it means something. We look at it, and right away, without trading eyes, we kind of almost love what we see on the chart, not even knowing what the technology was about. And effectively, the next 10, the next 10 years of our journey has been almost like falling more and more in love with the technology and how we can transform um, the way we are consuming financial services, but much more thing as well. So we really came into it not through the technology angle, much more through the price action and the, the chart, I would say, uh, and then kind of reverse engineer in the technology uh, and watching last night Terry emerging was kind of a, a very poetic, I would say, moment in the in the history. You know, I kind of laugh about it because it takes the SEC 10 years to move the, the settlement time from T plus 2 to T plus 1. Um, and it just took Joe Lubin and his team and the old dev at, uh, of the Ethereum Foundation, you know, I would say a, a long couple of years to get that done. And, you know, it's a, it's kind of an Im impressive uh, event. Your story echoes mine. I've told it a million times. I came in 2016, but just for the price action and trading, and it took a brutal bear market for me to convince myself that I actually cared about the technology, right? <laughs> and then I obviously got orange-pilled, but um, I think that there's a lot of people who sort of came in for money and then stayed for the technology. But you talk about sort of the disruption in financial services that's possible. Have you been encouraged by what you've seen over the past few years? In that angle, how much did 2022 affect, you know, your view? Because we saw this sort of massive contagion and washout of a lot of the financial services side, right? Which we're yeah, seeing so, masquerading as crypto, but... You're yeah. right. So two things. I think I think you need to uh, kind of separate uh, a little bit who came to crypto. And I think if you look at the companies who are still alive and who are still fighting and, and, and believing in something, who are true believer. You really get the pre-2017 or pre-2018, I would say, crop and the 
20, post 2018 crop. And, and what's happening is like 2017, we get this massive uh, uh, draft into crypto where plenty of people are arriving and the VC money is available and you get a lot of VC money injecting at that point. And if you look at the business who failed uh, and who imploded or, you know, were done for alleged fraud, uh, all these businesses are kind of like post-2018 post businesses. Like the real business who were built for the right reason on the long-term view, not just with a simple idea and a simple mindset to make a quick buck, uh, are still there and, you know, are still around. You know, I always use Bitfinex because it's quite a crazy example. Uh, this guy built an incredible, incredible amount of infrastructure between Bitfinex, Tether, which can have these kind of pro and cons, uh, but you know, they're still standing and they're still there and they're still trying to do their stuff and they don't make a lot of noise. They just keep moving and keep executing. You know, we can have philosophical discussion about how they're doing it, but what I'm trying to say is like, if you look at business like Bitstem, Kraken, uh, Coinbase, who were there in the early, early days, there's the one who just say, okay, we're going to build for the long term. We're not going to just try to over stretch ourselves or over accelerate. And yeah, sometimes it makes you a bit more boring than the last kid on the block. But that's because there is reason you are trying to execute on the long term. Right. And I think that's a great summary of what's happened, certainly with centralized platforms. We've seen a lot of uh, failures there. But you, you mentioned some of the big names that have just continued to build and continue to innovate slowly. But what do you think of DeFi at, at this point? Right. I think that uh, we had higher hopes, obviously, for TVL and usage and development yeah, by this point. But so it's funny. I, I was like, uh, I think, you know, I was having lunch yesterday with like the founder of Maple, uh, which is one of these uh, lending platforms on DeFi. And we were talking about how we were seeing the future and where we're seeing the innovation coming from. And, you know, what needs to be remembered is like what we saw in DeFi in 2022, 2021 is not that much different than what we saw in the ICO frenzy in 2017 or 2018. You know, you get like one good ICO, which was effectively, effectively Ethereum in early 16, which starts uh, opening the door for a ton of ICO. And same thing in DeFi, you get a good start, a few good projects in DeFi, which created a lot of copycat. Um, and, you know, I think the history will remember that out of this first kind of DeFi, you know, push, you get some very, very solid products which, which have been created. You know, you look at something like Arve, something like Compound, something like Curve, you get some uh, something like Uniswap. You look at all this platform collectively, uh, you know, we're talking about Uniswap making more volume than Coinbase recently. So you look at all this kind of stuff together and you say, well, wait a second. Okay, there's all the noise, which is like the defined noise, all the exploit for poorly executed contract or stuff which are pushed online too quickly, uh, which gets reverse engineered. And at the same time, you get this kind of massive uh, piece of work, uh, which are there and which are building also in the background for the long term. Uh, and, you know, uh, kudos to all these funders who have been doing that. And yeah, you know, you can look at Arve and Stanley doing all the project at the same time and trying to do many stuff as well. But, you know, the, the Arve platform, uh, which was funny enough used last night on the, on the reverse prism bug, uh, to do something quite uh, elegant again in DeFi, uh, is showing that um, it is built for the long term. And, you know, it, it's always the same thing. It's like you can see the frenzy happening with a short-term player who are just trying to, uh, I would say, capitalize on, on the trend. And you get the people who are building because they are believers. And they are, they are believing in the longer journey and the longer time horizon of DeFi, not just the 2019-2022 horizon.
you talked about Uniswap having more volume than Coinbase, which I find to just be an astounding statistic that we've seen of late. I think a lot of that obviously has to do with trouble with banking rails and, and all the regulatory things happening in the United States. But do you see a world where we really do make a wholesale move towards DeFi and centralized platforms become really diminished in importance in the background? Or do you think that they'll, they'll sort of be parallel rails for different people in different jurisdictions? I think it takes time. Uh, you know, at CoinShare, we always try to look at the way to, to in our research team, to to see how the human brain is not capable of completely appreciating the the power of description of technology because it's just like not built this way. And I think things like Uniswap and things like Compound and things like uh, and Curve are really are really creating the rails for something new to come. Uh, but it's very difficult to perceive the full extent of it. Uh, because of all the regulatory barrier or frameworks which are in place, which need to be adjusted and adapted around that. You know? There's a big question in DeFi. You know, the DeFi world has been striving on the absence of KYC and AML. Uh, you have now process which are happening on DeFi to KYC wallet and, and make all this kind of stuff happening. So, you know, it's going in the right direction. Once again, you know, like the, the regulator like to see uh, a fully packaged product, which is like finished and polished and ready to deliver. Like the the technology uh, innovation style, technology driven innovation is more to ship fast and and keep uh, and keep uh, I would say uh, reshaping and updating and upgrading all the time. So so the functionality get added all the time. So we can see how we have now a DeFi environment which is becoming more or closer and closer to what the regulator will want to see. Uh, obviously, the regulator keep looking at the V1. He's not going to be happy if he looks at the a V10 or V12, um, it's going to be, uh, okay, this guy are really going in the right direction. So it really depends where you put your your cursor on what is the requirement from a regulatory perspective and what is the regulator looking at. But the speed of innovation is so quick that by the time they finish review V1, you're already at V5. So it's a little yeah. bit of a kind of, a, it, it, it's a bit unfair to some degree to the regulator because they're not equipped to be able to uh, uh, assess that properly. And and sometimes I think we are making ourselves a disservice as a community by not embracing the regulator more and not taking them on the journey with us. You know, at CoinShare, we, we have a very open book policy with regulators where we just invite them in and they say, okay, guys, that's the way we're doing it. That's the reason why we listed the company as well, because we wanted to be able to provide full transparency on what we were doing. Um, and, you know, we have, we have an open regulator sometimes to second staff inside our business to say, we're very happy for you to send us some of your staff so we can show them what it means to run a proper, transparent, uh, regulated business in crypto. Uh, so as you can understand the commercial and the business side of it as well when you start to write policies and, and procedures. It's interesting because you talk about bringing the regulator along. And I think our biggest problem was that we had the wrong person bringing the regulator along because the environment in 2022 was seemingly much more favorable when SBF was being viewed as this hero and he was on Capitol Hill and taking meetings with Gary Gensler. And he was the last person on earth that we wanted to see be proven a fraud because I think he embarrassed the industry and I think he embarrassed the very legislators and regulators that we were hoping to woo to some degrees. I mean, you guys had 30-ish million dollars exposure to FDX. Feels like everybody in some way did. How much damage did Sam do, do you think, to the regulatory environment? Mike Novogratz, I talked to you the other day, and he said two years. He said he thinks he set us back two years. Yeah, I think I think it's two years. What I'm more concerned about is more bruising ego. You know, like 
bruising people is fine. Bruising their ego is something else. And it's always take longer, you know, bruising your financial statement as a company is one thing. Bruising your ego is another. Uh, and people tend, you know, tend to recover much, take long, much longer time to recover from a, a bruised ego. So two years is, you know, definitely a, a right, uh, a right uh, number. But if you look, you know, uh, what's happened with Temasek Investment, you know, they, they were one of the big investors in, in FTX. And, and all these guys are like, you know, their reputation was on the line. A lot of people invested because they saw the Temasek brand on it as well. So, you know, this kind of like association is very damaging for them. And when it comes to the regulator, I think the regulator, you know, make a, wanted to get, uh, you know, uh, a representant or someone they believe in to do the right thing in crypto. And, you know, you, you know, casting mistakes happen to everybody. So I'm not going to throw them the stone and say, you guys get the wrong horses in this race. Uh, everybody makes mistakes. Question is like, are they going to be able to go over that mistake uh, and restart thinking and say, okay, we need to find another champion and see, okay, who is going to be our, you know, company or set of companies to help us navigate that? Because I think, I still believe uh, deep down that they need to work with businesses. They need to work with them to understand how to, to regulate this environment, you know, uh, Brian Armstrong had a very uh, good analogy a couple of months ago when he was saying, please don't write this kind of uh, policy in a vacuum. Don't lock yourself in, a, in an ivory tower. It's a, it's a John Le Carre, you know, quote saying, seeing the world from an office is a very dangerous place to be. And, and that's exactly what the regulator tends to do because it don't go, you know, on the ground uh, with the businesses to understand what are the commercial rationale and how things are running. So, so really having the business input, I think is very, very valuable and very, very important. And again, I'm conscious we always here to just give his hands and, and, and give you support when it's needed. Yeah. I hate the sort of interpretation that because Sam was a fraud, the entire industry was a fraud. And there are people in the government that clearly have sort of taken it that way. And I don't know if, like you said, it's because their ego is bruised. I mean, Maxine Waters, Gary Gensler. I mean, there's pictures of these people with Sam, you know, arm around them that the optics are everything in politics in politics. So you have to wonder if they're just sort of overcompensating to the other side to punish all of us for sort of his misdeeds. Well, you you know, the dependent always overswing, you know. So that was my my my, my theory, bless you, around the lack of regulation was always that if at some point someone get hurt the regulator going to overreact to that damage. And, you know, if it's a big institution getting hurt, it's one thing. If it's millions of retail um, taxpayer getting hurt, it's another story. Uh, and I think what we are seeing right now is like this overswing uh, to the other extreme where everything is, is bad and it will normalize. You know, when Mike said two years to normalize, it's probably right. It's like you just need a bit of time to to normalize and and get there. But the the pendulum, you know, it's a it's a Soros principle of reflexivity of reflexivity. reflexivity. And, and that's exactly what's happening here. It's like at some point you need to be able to to swallow it and and, and to digest it, and it's going to go through the system, and eventually we're going to come out of it stronger and in a better place. I mean, you guys have been sort of at the epicenter of innovation in this space since almost the very beginning. As you talked about in 2013, you've created exchange traded products. You know, we we haven't obviously gotten a, a proper ETF in the United States yet. 
are there things that are being built right now that you're still as excited about as you were at the very beginning? Um, yeah, actually, you know, it's funny because we were watching the merge last night with the team and like realizing what a massive progression it has been. You know, you have been, you, you have got so many of these kind of Ethereum killer narrative, uh, you know, trashing Ethereum for years. Uh, and all of a sudden, Ethereum make this big mature move and transformation, which kind of reshuffles the cards and say, okay, well, you better have a serious reason to kill Ethereum now because they managed to do uh, what is an incredible uh, transformation. People tend to forget, but I think you get the technology aspect of it, which is very important, which makes stuff slow. But you get also the fiduciary aspect. You know, if you if this merge was not working, there was a lot of Ethereum stake which was at risk. So the 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 way the Ethereum Foundation, for, I would say, for sake of a better word, and with all consensus, are managing that to make sure that you know the fiduciary element of that was fully respected and 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 fully conserved uh, is remarkable. Uh, is absolutely remarkable and a proof that our industry is maturing and maturing in the right direction by taking care of its stakeholders, not just like doing things for doing it and like we 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 we, we look about we we'll figure out the consequences later. So there's plenty of stuff keeping us uh, very excited, you know, and and what can be built in the future is just like incredible. So it's just about you know staying uh, staying awake uh, and not like falling asleep because of the old regulatory narrative and like zooming out and looking at the big picture uh and and believing you know like it's too easy to be focused on the micro element of it because we are on a day-to-day basis looking at it if you zoom out and you look at it it's quite remarkable yeah i think regardless of your view on proof of work versus versus proof of stake yeah. you should at least intellectually be able to admit that that was one of the biggest technological maneuvers yeah. in history it yeah. could have gone yeah, wrong so in so right. many it's ways like, and you know we have some you know in the coin share research team we get so many debate about all and because we get some very bitcoin uh kind of like i would say maximalist people in our team and we get some more uh evm specialists and you can see how the fruitful debate happened between them and like they have very good argument on both sides you know and what you know but if you go beyond that you know you need to be able to realize as you said that you know from a technology point of view which has been what what has been what has been achieved is it's fantastic. It's remarkable, and I think everybody in our team at least realizes that, and and is seeing the, that there is some interesting thing there. Right, and as we're recording this, obviously you've hinted to the fact that last night was the Shanghai uh, update, which uh, effectively allowed people to be able to withdraw. We've also, you know, alongside all of this roadmap and them sort of hitting their hitting their hitting their targets here. We've seen a massive, massive move with Optimism, Arbitrum, Polygon, the Layer 2 narrative, and ZK EVMs and all these things. Do you think we're seeing sort of a reconsolidation back into Ethereum as the main narrative? I mean, it seems like a lot of the shine has sort of fallen off of other Layer 1s as Ethereum has continued continued to innovate. Yeah, I think, I, I think well, that's not probably the house view. It's more my personal view. And like you have like a I, I, I will be much more inclined to see a refocus uh, on on Ethereum and the layer two, which are built on Ethereum. Uh, you know, there is a lot of things which are very interesting around the rollup. Uh, the rollup happening kind of unlock another level uh, of uh, of uh, innovation uh, and like allow just like obfuscate things which were you know in clear before. So we're really going to another level of 
permission permissionless kind of debate, uh, which is very, very interesting. You talked about being on Ave last night doing some sort of uh, you know unique u- unique maneuvers that are only available in DeFi. So it sounds like you actually use this stuff and you dig in pretty no, no, deep. We, 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 well, we use Ave, we use all this kind of thing, of course, but like we're, we were more watching the exploit and seeing how people were very cleverly engineering exploit around Ave and the Prism update. Uh, you know, it was it was more like a, an illustration that not everything was you know you know, perfectly fine. There was like, there's always some little uh, patches to make it to happen. And once the patch goes, everything is fine. Yeah, I, I understand. So I want to talk about institutions, obviously. We've sort of had the narrative of institutional adoption leading crypto upwards for as long as I've been here, certainly. And, and I look back at 2017 and it's laughable that we thought that that was being institutionally driven when we didn't even have custody solutions for institutions and their coins. Do you think that we are seeing still this continued uptick uptick in interest from institutions? Do you think that 2022, talking about that, unfortunately, again, sort of dampened that excitement? Uh, I mean, you guys are at the forefront of this. You're talking institutions, I would imagine, on a daily basis. Yeah. So the crypto market has this kind of uh, unique nature where it's not built down from top to bottom is built down bottom up. So it starts with crypto retail and it goes up into institution, which is very kind of a very, very different journey. And probably why it gets so much uh, resistance from institution, because that's not invented here syndrome. Um, and, you know, if you look at the gold market, it was nothing with a big allocation from the institution. And then, you know, eventually the retail can get access, you know, and that was a very different approach here. Um, now, what is interesting is like, a lot of infrastructure were missing. Uh, as you mentioned, you mentioned like uh, custody for institution was a big piece missing of the puzzle. You know, at CoinShare, we realized that very early on, you know, in 2017, I think we have $2 billion worth of crypto in our books. And we're like, okay, Zappo is shutting down, which was the only game in town at the time. And we said, okay, well, we need to get a proper custody solution. And that's where we partnered with Ledger and the Mirror and said, okay, we're going to build a custody solution for the right. Uh, for, for to address our need, which understand what are the requirements of financial uh, company, and that was done. But and and by doing that, we saw how institutions were starting to be interested because it was all about okay, how do we check the very long list of I would say due diligence uh, they have to be able to trigger the investment. Um, at that point, right now, post twenty twenty two. Yes, uh, I would say the the mood tape has been dumped a little bit, or the mood music has been dumped a bit by the kind of uh, FTX uh, damage, and especially by the, you know, a lot of people took a lot of, uh, I would say, uh, cognitive bias by uh, or validation by having you know big name like Koto or or whoever investing in this in, in this scene and seeing all this kind of leader being hurt, kind of like slow down a little bit ambition of others. But funny enough, uh, they are, were back uh, talking to us much faster than we anticipated. So we thought it would be like an 18 months before we hear from anybody else uh, at that point. And funny enough, come January, people were back calling and uh, discussing and activating calls. So it's a very, very uh, shorter cycle than we anticipated, actually. You talked about that being in January. Now it's April. But has any of this been a result of the banking collapses and the large move in Bitcoin. I mean, anecdotally, I've spoke with quite a few people who are saying now we're finally seeing this flight to safety narrative 
for Bitcoin and they're getting calls from unexpected people asking about that. <laughs> so it's a, it's an interesting point you raise here. And I'm going to, you know, we, we have a, you know, we, we have this massive CRM where people share notes with us and, and I have quite a lot of updates with my team. And, and I think one of our sales guy, uh, which is like working very closely with the distribution network in Europe, uh, raised back for the first time in his entire career with CoinShare, and he was with us since 2016. That's the first time I get an institutional client calling me uh, to discuss Bitcoin and call Bitcoin like a safe haven asset. I'm like, okay, well, we definitely, maybe it's a one-off, uh, and that's not going to repeat, but you know, it feels like the banking crisis and all this kind of stuff, as you described, you know, people say, oh, we get ETF, we get gold ETF, where is the gold? Well, we get like 10 people in between. And like people like start to figure out, say, well, how do we get closer to our asset, to our asset, and how do we start to remove intermediaries? And in a business which has been very intermediated over time, so the simple fact to remove a few of them is is better than you know is better than nothing. Do you think that we have any chance of seeing a spot ETF in the United States anytime soon? I would get, I would argue no chance with Gensler at the helm, but uh, that's my opinion. I, I, I think the jury's out on this one. I think it will take a bit more time you're right i don't think it's happening overnight i think you have a i think gary against the still have two year and a half terms left in in his current term so uh, i think you yeah, maybe i'm wrong but uh, i think you see it under a different uh sec uh, leadership then i guess the next question is does it matter do we need it <sighs> well people will argue that there is already a lot of money allocated to things like Grayscale and other uh, structures in the US, which, you know, with, with the lack of an ETF has done the job of an ETF. So, you know, I think it's still needed because there is a lot of tax benefit linked to it. You know, like, it's not like you can, you know, if you look at Europe, which is more the coin share market, you know, than the US on, the, on that front, you know, if you buy our product in Germany or in Sweden, you buy tax-free, no capital gain, uh, there's a lot of advantage there, uh, especially if you hold it for a year. Uh, what if you buy, if you just buy Bitcoin outright, uh, you can't really get the same thing. You know, if you buy our stake product, you know, we, we have stake Tezos and stake Solana and stake other thing, you know, other product. If you buy them and you get the staking reward paid out because it's a, what we did was quite innovative where we have zero management fees and we share the staking reward with the customers. Uh, if you buy that, you know, your old tax foreign are gone because go explain the regulator, the, the, the tax inspector now that you get a capital gain on Solana, but you also get some dividend like uh, from uh, from Solana, uh, which is only 3% or 5% or whatever number. So it's becoming very complicated uh, and it's become not very tax efficient. So there is some benefits in this product that can be housed within your retirement plan, upon your retirement accounts. And, you know, it's, it's not like as simple as do we need it? It's like, what is the benefit of one versus not effectively? And I think for the a uh, usual uh, allocator and the, the person who is not a professional investor, uh, who is just a you know a self-directed uh, investor, that has a lot of value and you know it's a lot of peace of mind as well because you know people are big advocate of oh yeah I can buy Bitcoin on myself and put it in my on my ledger and I'm a big big uh, endowments aren't doing say, that <laughs> pension funds aren't doing that right. Yeah, but I'm, you know, I'm a big supporter of Ledger, and you know, we are we have a, a fantastic joint venture together. Pascal is a very close friend of mine. Uh, but at the same time, like um, the reason we created Bank is because people were mugged on the road 
traveling from one city to another because eventually people know they were traveling with money. So the, the moment people are going to start traveling with like the Ledger Nano or their other hardware device, uh, you know, in their pocket, you know, what kind of insecurity trigger you're going to uh, attract? Uh, and that's exact, and, and that's a point where, well, at least your savings are in a retirement plan, in a, in a product which is, uh, you know, a, a MIFID security. It's a much more interesting uh, proposition than holding it outright. Yeah. But, and you're right, uh, you know, I, institutional I... investors at scale, like endowment, you know, it would be an interesting story to look at. I don't know how much uh, Harvard endowment own outright gold in the safe at JP Morgan right. you know, versus yeah, how much I... ETF, you know. I never look at that actually, but it would be an interesting, uh, an interesting number to look at to see how much real physical gold they have. I, I, yeah, I would venture that most of it is paper gold, right? Uh, uh, in, you know, in, I, in, I think it's correct. Yeah, I, I would think so. You talked about the fact that you offer staking services, and we've seen sort of already SEC push back a settlement with Kraken for staking as a service. So. Does that concern you at all? I mean, for the products so that you're offering, really, how do you navigate that? We're not really offering staking as a service. It's more like right. we are embedding the staking reward uh, in our product. So our products are priced almost like a total return swap, uh, i.e. the price by the reward derived from the staking is already embedded in the price, um, which gives it a very different aspect uh, than staking as a service. So we didn't go the staking as a service rule. We really stay on what we know, which is financial services. and and find an elegant way to, to make it fit within a, a regulated financial services product. So obviously the Ethereum merge and the Shanghai fork have been the major narratives of late. One of the other ones, and as I mentioned before, you guys were obviously affected, is that FTX has recovered $7 billion odd in assets and they're consider, uh, considering turning the exchange back on. What do you make of well, that? Well, I think, you know, if there, you know, I think the, well, the numbers are kind of, moving a bit, uh, it's a moving target, but I think the number was like 12 to 14 billion uh, of, uh, you know, uh, of debt outstanding uh, at FTX. So if they really recover 7.5 or 7.2 billion, it means, you know, net of, you know, not accounting for fees or whatever, but this, we are almost like 50 cents on a dollar versus what it was. So I think the people who are buying claim did very well for themselves because I remember Seeing people buying claims for two cents on a dollar. Two cents. I saw two cents on a dollar on the on the day on, on the next day. So so I think right now all the offering, you know, we're part of this massive distribution list where we see plenty of offering coming our way. I think you know, people are buying anywhere between fifteen and and thirty and maybe twenty five more than thirty. But so it's interesting to see that you know the 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 bankruptcy uh, lawyer is giving out some numbers. The fact they want to reopen the exchange is very interesting. I'll be very interesting to see what's happening there and under which jurisdiction and under which brand as well. So, you know, it, it's food for thoughts and and which would and with which capital as well, because obviously you're gonna to need to get a bit of capital to prime that uh to get going. So uh be interesting to see that happening actually and see what the next step in that direction. So I, I know we only have a few minutes left here. How much hope do you have that this market has actually bottomed and that we're recovering here in 2023 and things are going to continue on the way up? Um, I, I think there's a few stuff which are uh, interesting right now. I think the market uh, has been uh, very much supported by the old banking narrative as we discussed. I think the market is pricing uh, 
a Fed pivot at some point uh, or pivot at some point this year. Uh, so that's kind of what's supporting the market. What I would like to see personally is a bit more volume. It's like I still believe the volume are very thin and very weak, which doesn't give me uh, the extra comfort I will need uh, past the kind of, uh, I would say, uh, recent price action. Uh, I, I would really want to see more volume and, you know, new highs on, well, new highs, you know, new current highs, I would say, or, or local highs on, on, on stronger volume will give me a bit more uh, conviction uh, that uh, this is like a, a long-term thing and we are like truly entering into this new dynamic. This is how we know that you're a trader, right? At heart, we know you're a trader at heart when you're saying it's on low volume and it doesn't count. <laughs> well, it that's doesn't my count. I, I have a very similar theory. I just think that it's the moves are more volatile because the order books are thin and the spreads are off and I think it's just a different market. It's a different market. The CME is concentrating a lot of volume, you know, like the FTX debacle, uh, you know, make a lot of volume go out of the market full stop and you get a lot of concentration on Binance. Uh, and, and all the marketplace. So the, the, the deck has changed uh, dramatically on the derivative side, but I, I would just be happier to see more volume on the spot market. You know, like, uh, you know, if you if you park the derivative market for five seconds, I would want to see more volume on the spot market. I, I agree. I agree 100%. So I know you got to go. Where can uh, people follow you after this conversation and check out everything that CoinShares is doing? So CoinShare website, coinshares.com, uh, CoinShare LinkedIn and Twitter page. Uh, and my personal Twitter page. Awesome, man. Thank you so much for for uh, all of the insight there. Really valuable. This uh, Ethereum narrative, I'm hearing it everywhere now and I, I, I like it. Wow. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Scott. Talk soon.